I really don't think we need a sermon after that music, but we'll go ahead anyways. A couple of little boys, ages 8 and 10, who were excessively mischievous. The two were always getting into trouble, and their parents could be assured that if any mischief occurred in their town, their two sons were in some way involved. The parents were at their wit's end as to what to do about their son's behavior. So the mother had heard about a clergyman in town who had been successful in disciplining children in the past, so she asked her husband if he thought that they should send the boys to speak with the clergyman. The husband said, we might as well. We need to do something before I really lose my temper. So the clergyman agreed to speak with the boys, but he asked to see them individually. The eight-year-old went to meet with him first. The clergyman sat the boy down and he asked him sternly, Where is God? The boy made no response, so the clergyman repeated the question in an even sterner tone. Where is God? Again, the boy made no attempt to answer, so the clergyman raised his voice even more and he shook his finger in the boy's face. Where is God? God. At that, the boy bolted from the room and he ran directly home, slamming himself in the closet. His older brother followed him into the closet and asked what had happened. And the younger brother replied, we're in big trouble this time. God is missing and they think we did it. (laughs) So where is God? Scripture says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. There is nowhere in all the universe where you are not. Surely your arm is not too short to save, nor your ear too dull to hear. Let's open in prayer. Our Lord... And our God, in a universe that seems so immense, it's easy to feel insignificant as we gather here today. Yet we know that we are precious in your sight, unique individuals loved and blessed in so many ways. We stand in awe of you who has created all things. And we dedicate this time and all our days to your service. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're continuing studying the parables of our Lord Jesus. And our first parable this morning is found in Mark chapter 4, verses 26 to 29. Mark chapter 4, verses 26 to 29. He, Jesus, also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it 
because the harvest has come. The first thing we notice about this parable is its similarity to the parable of the sower in Mark 4, verses 2 and 9. And in some ways, this parable expands on Jesus' teaching on how the good soil, a receptive heart, receives the seed, the word of God. In this parable of the growing seed, Jesus tells of a man who scatters seed on the ground and then allows nature to take its course. As a man who sowed the seed goes about his business day by day, the seed begins to have an effect. First the seed spouts, then it produces a stalk and leaves, then a head of grain, and finally fully developed kernels in the head. Jesus emphasizes that all this happens without the man's help. The man who scattered the seed cannot even fully understand how it happens. It is simply the work of nature. All by itself, the soil produces. Verse 28. The parable ends with a harvest. As soon as the grain is ripe, the sickle is employed and the seed is harvested. And this happens at just the right time. Jesus did not explain this parable as he did some others. Instead, he left it to us to understand its meaning. So taking the seed to be the word of God, as in Mark chapter 4, verse 14, we can interpret the growth of the plants as the working of God's word in individual hearts. The fact that the crop grows without the farmer's intervention means that God can accomplish his purposes even when we are absent or we're unaware of what he's doing. The goal is the ripened grain. And at the proper time, the word will bring forth its fruit and the Lord of the harvest will be glorified. The truth of this parable is well illustrated in the growth of the early church. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. Just like a farmer cannot force a crop to grow, an evangelist cannot force spiritual life or growth in others. The way God uses his word in the heart of an individual is mysterious and completely independent of human effort. May we be faithful in sowing the seed, praying for the harvest, and leaving the results to the Lord. The second parable we're studying this morning is found in three Gospels. But let's continue reading in Mark chapter 4, verses 30 to 32. Again he said, which is Jesus, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet, when planted, again, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in the shade. I think that the one central truth that this parable is attempting to teach is how the kingdom will develop from the smallest of beginnings into something that will be greater than anyone could have imagined from the outset. Jesus says, here's this mustard seed. 
a tiny speck of a seed, seeming so insignificant when it's sown. But eventually, it grows into the 6 to 10 or 12 foot plant that has large branches and produces shade. Jesus is dealing with the fact that his followers may feel like this seed is very insignificant. With all that was going on in the Roman Empire, here's this little little group of people gathered together, and it may have felt like their seed that they were planting was so insignificant. What difference could it make? What difference could it make? We realize that every person that has trusted Jesus as their Savior can trace his or her spiritual roots back to one of these people sitting in the room, in that room with Jesus on that day. It may have seemed like a little insignificant seed, but it changed the world. It literally changed the world. So it may feel like our sowing of the seed is also very insignificant. What could possibly come of this? Well, an external harvest for one thing. As God takes these little seeds that are sown and he builds his kingdom. Our third parable this morning is the parable of yeast or leaven. And it's found in two of the Gospels. But let's turn to Luke chapter 13, verse 20 and 21. Luke chapter 13, verse 20 and 21. Again, he, Jesus, asked, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus uses this story as an object lesson to illustrate the kingdom of heaven. And as Farmer Jim so rightly pointed out last week in his sermon, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are one and the same. In this parable, a woman takes yeast or leaven and mixes it into dough. Eventually, the whole of the dough is leavened. So what does it mean? In the current age, the kingdom of heaven is spiritual, existing within the hearts of believers. Later, the kingdom will be manifested physically when the Lord Jesus establishes his throne on earth. In the parable of the yeast, we learn several things about the working of the kingdom in our present age. Each of these lessons stem from the nature of yeast. First, the kingdom of God may have small beginnings, but it will increase. Yeast is microscopic in size, and only a little is kneaded into the dough. Yet given time, the yeast will spread all through the dough. And in the same way, Jesus' domain started with 12 men in an obscure corner of Galilee, but it has spread throughout the whole world. The gospel makes progress. Second, the kingdom of God exerts its influence from within, not from without. Yeast makes dough rise from within. God first changes the heart of a person. And that internal change has external manifestations. 
The gospel influence in a culture works the same way. Christians within a culture act as agents of change, slowly transforming that culture from within. And third, the effect of the kingdom of God will be comprehensive. Just as yeast works until the dough has completely risen, the ultimate benefit of the kingdom of God will be worldwide. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14. And fourth, although the kingdom of God works invisibly, its effect is evident to all. Yeast does its job slowly, secretly and silently. But no one can can deny its effect on bread. The same is true of the work of grace in our hearts. The nature of yeast is to grow and to change whatever it contacts. When we accept Christ, his grace grows in our heart and changes us from the inside out. As the gospel transforms lives, it exerts a pervasive influence in the world at large. As we reflect the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. I'm reminded of a story I read of actor Charles Dutton. No one imagined that Charles Dutton would have achieved anything, for he spent many years imprisoned for manslaughter. But when someone asked how this now successful Broadway star and movie actor, how he managed to make such a remarkable transition, he replied, unlike the other prisoners, I never decorated my prison cell. Dutton had resolved never to regard his cell as home. As Christians, we too accomplish much in this world when we don't adapt ourselves to it but instead are longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16 says this about men of faith. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So, what do these three parables tell us about the kingdom of God? In the parable of the growing seed, Jesus emphasizes the part of the hearer in receiving the seed of the gospel. Jesus adds the parable with a puzzle that man cannot answer. Natural is supernatural. Man may be the hearer whose response to the gospel bears upon its growth and results, but the growth itself is God's supernatural work. Two mysteries of the kingdom follow. One is that truth grows beyond man's knowledge. The other is that truth grows beyond man's control. When Jesus says of the sower, he himself does not know how, in verse 27 of Mark chapter 4, he puts the mystery of life outside the knowledge of man. The second mysterious and miraculous principle of growth of the kingdom of God follows logically. If the nature of life 
is beyond man's knowledge, then he cannot control its growth. Verse 28, for the earth yields crops by itself. The control of life remains a mystery, whether in dictating human behavior, growing a crop of grain, or directing the development of the kingdom of God. Our egos may also want to control the speed of growth for the kingdom of God. Impatience takes over as we try to short-circuit the process by expecting an instant harvest. Perhaps we're victims of a culture where everything is fast foods and instant relief. But Jesus slows us down when he describes a process that takes time and cannot be either sped up or short-circuited. And because we cannot control God's timing for the kingdom of God, we must trade in our stopwatches for calendars. Our egos also get us in trouble because we want to control the harvest of the kingdom of God. As John Stott once once preached, God has only commissioned us to preach the gospel to all nations. The growing and the results belong to him. In the parable of the mustard seed, we learned that a mustard seed is all at risk. It is so insignificant that it's almost embarrassing. Yet Jesus makes risk and insignificance the essential ingredients for starting projects in the kingdom of God. We are equally uncomfortable with the idea that purpose of the kingdom is to grow in service rather than power. A mustard seed is not a symbol of powerful empires. It is a herb noted for its service rather than its domination. Christians are always tempted to align the kingdom of God with earthly power. And as history reveals, Christianity does not always come out showing the grace of God when it is empowered as a nation's religion. Whenever this happens, a principle of the kingdom is perverted and the parable of Jesus is misread. We must be constantly drawn back to the truth of the kingdom of God. It begins small in significance and it grows great in service. So did the disciples understand these advanced principles? Probably not, because we still don't understand them today. In the kingdom of God, the hidden is open, natural is supernatural, and small is great. And by reversing all the expectations of traditional religion, Jesus teaches that the growth of his kingdom is not of this world. In the parable of the East, the parable emphasizes the transforming power of the gospel of the kingdom. It changes persons, social orders, economic relations, and primary loyalties. From the illustration of the way in which yeast moves from particle to particle, Plummer says this, that kingdom in which the will of God is acknowledged until it becomes supreme is to spread from soul to soul until all are brought within his sovereignty. The kingdom is one of those concepts that seem to elude the grasp of our minds. 
We can easily consider earthly kingdoms, since they can be explained geographically with boundaries and politically with a definable government. We study ancient kingdoms of Babylon and Egypt as part of a well-rounded education. And if we stretch ourselves, we can recall a few facts about them. They had boundaries and supreme dictators or governments and mighty armies and many enslaved subjects. Does that sound familiar today, even in democratic countries? But the kingdom of God is different. It has no boundaries geographically. It needs no machinery that moves modern or ancient kingdoms because the rule of the kingdom is omnipotent. And as history proves, earthly kingdoms come and go. God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Even when God's kingdom appears to be obscured, it remains forceful, mighty, and unruffled by the kingdoms of this world. Ancient and modern kingdoms regularly regularly displayed their might through dazzling parades, magnificent buildings, extravagant celebrations, and grand armies. The ancients constructed new roads and buildings to accommodate a visit from the emperor or the king. People measured kingdoms by how large of a splash that they could make in a given setting. So when Jesus announced the arrival of the kingdom, the first century mind expected parades, armies, construction projects, and ceremony. A disconnect existed between their concept of the kingdom and what they viewed as insignificant and powerless. But the parables teach listeners that the kingdom of God will have only small beginnings, and this is in contrast to what was normally believed. That it would come with such force and power that foreign armies and powers would be subdued under its forceful advance. And for the Jew especially, that Roman occupation of the land of Israel would be expelled when God's King Messiah was first firmly established as reigning from Jerusalem and out into the world. The kingdom of God may appear insignificant and without, without influence, yet we can be certain of its widespread growth. Luther saw it happen. So did Augustine and Wesley. God's kingdom is not dependent upon the displays of human might. By sovereign design, the kingdom grows and affects multitudes without boundaries. So, what is the kingdom of God like, we might ask? In Jesus' frame, he answers in simple pictures for us to grasp. In the Gospels, we see Jesus as the unequaled teacher. Jesus is considered by almost everybody as one of the world's great teachers. But we Christians believe that he is much more than this. He is God incarnate, born to us in human form. But he is also the world's greatest teacher. His teachings, however, seem to give a good deal of offense. I heard it said once that if someone makes us think we're thinking, we love him. If he really makes us think, we don't like him at all. 
Sometimes the teachers we don't like are the ones that really made us think. And we can't appreciate them until much later in life. What are the marks of a great teacher? A great teacher teaches what is relevant. A great teacher communicates truths that are applicable to our lives and that can change the way we live. Genuine truth is universal. And the academic world is sometimes a little contemptuous about the respected and about the realistic. But the great teachers know better. In medicine right now, there's a revolutionary new trend. Doctors are no longer treating diseases that happen to be in people. They're treating people who happen to have diseases. In the same way, great teachers are not teaching subjects. They're teaching students. Every great teacher communicates one great truth, one central truth. And as varied as Jesus' teachings are, the central message is always there. He keeps stressing that he came to establish a kingdom, the kingdom of God. And in that kingdom, there is a new way to live in relationship with God. He compares that kingdom to any number of things. It's like a man scattering seed. Its growth is up to God. It's like a grain of mustard seed. The tiniest of seeds can become a tree 10 to 12 feet tall. The kingdom he is establishing is like a yeast in a loaf of bread. Though hidden, it infiltrates everything. If we find ourselves discouraged by all the evil about us in the world today, and there is plenty of it, then perhaps we should pause for a few moments to consider the continuing impact of Christ's kingdom in this world. Everywhere the work of the kingdom has spread, not only have there been new converts that follow Christ even to death, but there's also arisen thousands of schools, colleges, universities, hospitals, orphanages, job training programs, hunger relief programs, literacy training, and a host prison ministries, and a host of others that benefit society. There's nothing small about the influence and effects of Christ's kingdom in this world. Whatever small beginnings we observe of Christ's kingdom, let us be assured that it will grow far beyond our comprehension. In verse 29 and 30 of Luke chapter 13, Jesus tells us, People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their place at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. We will not know who is and who is not in the kingdom until we move beyond this life into the next. Perhaps we're going to be amazed to see who's in that kingdom, because it won't just be the old church crowd. We'll also see people that we never expected to see. Jesus tells us that the kingdom is full of surprises. That's the band from that. We're just familiar with the Bible Project 
You know that one of Tim Knight's favorite sayings is, God's upside down kingdom. And that's exactly what Kerry preached today. That God's kingdom is so different than what, you know, the world expects or what the kingdom is. Thank you, Jim. It's one of the greatest sermons I've heard of in the You've been listening to uh, Dr. N.T. Wright this week in some of his sermons. And he's from the UK and he's talking to American students and they say, you know, you people from Britain, you understand the whole kingdom thing because you've been raised in that kingdom setting. And that's what he said. He said that you know, the kingdoms of this earth are nothing like the kingdom of God. Please stand as we sing this uh, last mighty song, Praise and Worship for God. Your God and Father in heaven, as a brother preach you, Lord Father, about your kingdom. Please help us to understand, Lord Father, what your kingdom is truly like on earth. That is not a, a building, a, a, a place where there's walls around the Lord Father, but it is your reign and your rule on earth, Lord Father. And he came in the most humblest form, as we, as we heard, Lord Father, like a mustard seed, something that seems so insignificant that it would. There's no potential for growth, Lord Father, as this yeast spreads through, um, through the low fat, as the, the mustard seed grows into a giant tree, Lord Father, your kingdom spreads through the earth. And just thank you that these seeds were planted in our hearts, Lord Father, that, Father, that we may be servants of the kingdom and part of this kingdom that has come. As our brother preached, Lord Father, may we too, Lord Father, take the gift of this seed and plant it also, Father, in the heart of others that your kingdom may grow in that, and Lord Father, that your that the earth may fill your glory, like the, like the earth is filled, uh, the sea is filled with water, and may the earth be filled with your glory. So help us to take this message, keep it in our heart, Lord Father, and give you glory, and Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all these things have come. Amen. Amen. Amen.